On today's episode of Unmet Need, I talk about working with the U.S. regulator, the Food and Drug Administration. We talk specifically about medical device class one, class two, and class three medical devices, and specifically go into how exactly an entrepreneur gets clearance or regulatory approval to commercialize the United States. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And today's episode is all about the FDA. The sequence of talking about U.S. regulatory matters are important when starting the company because it's always a good idea to have the end in mind at the beginning. So I'm going to break down the three primary classes of medical devices. And so within the FDA, there is obviously food, drug, medical devices. Many consumer products are regulated through the FDA. But for purposes of this discussion, we'll talk about medical devices. And so the medical device classes consist of class one, which think of I'm going to make an orthopedic mallet and I'm going to notify the FDA of my intent to sell. And so this does not require clearance or approval from the FDA prior to commercializing. The key distinction with class one is that first, your medical device, the way you intend to market it, and especially the way you intend to train physicians on how to use this device all conform to the class one qualifications and what makes a product class one. I highly recommend you to go to the FDA's website, fda.gov, and there's excellent guidance documents on what a class one medical device is. For purposes of this discussion, think of a class one device as a general use instrument. And so because it is general use, the FDA cleared or approved labeling for exactly what industry can do to promote, it's very broad. And so the watch out here is when you take a class one instrument, let's say going back to the orthopedic mallet, if you register with the Food and Drug Administration, first, you have to register your establishment. That's the name of your company. And then next, if you register the specific product, in this case, the orthopedic mallet, And you have to maintain a quality management system, which we'll talk about in another episode. But you've effectively registered with the FDA. Now, it's important to note, you can't say this product is FDA approved. You can't make a claim that when you use your orthopedic mallet in a specific way, you get a specific clinical outcome or even an economic outcome. You cannot make claims about this product because it is being regulated, which means your ability to promote and market the device is very limited, and it's restricted under this general use. So if you were to take the orthopedic mallet, register with the FDA as a class one instrument, surgeons could begin using it. You could promote it for the use of malleting something an orthopedic mallet would be used for. If you turned it into the magic mallet procedure that required some kind of enabling technology and imaging modality, that is an example of taking a general use instrument and then promoting it for a very specific technique. And it gets even more off-label if you're using that specific technique to provide clinical benefit for a very specific patient population. So in summary, class one, generic, general use. All right, we're going to skip class two and we'll go right to class three. And class three has the highest regulatory bar. This is traditionally reserved for pre-market approval is required otherwise known as a PMA, which stands for pre-market approval. Now, the whole basis for a class three medical implant 
or device is that it's certainly not general use. So that's why I start with class one. It's not class one. This is an implant. It's going to go into the body. It's going to do some very specific thing. Now, the fact that it's being implanted creates a level of risk. It's a safety risk. It's an efficacy risk. And because this is a medical implant and because we're exploring class three, the whole idea behind class three is that there's nothing else like it. And so we'll come back to that when we discuss class two. But for purposes of the class three description, a class three medical device requiring pre-market approval has the highest level of novelty. And so you've basically invented something that the FDA has never regulated, or if they have, let's say it's the seventh or eighth cervical disc arthroplasty device, for instance, there's already been a well-established path to regulate this type of implant. It's like a class effect that you would see in a pharmaceutical industry. And FDA has determined this particular product will be regulated through the class three pathway. And that means the sponsor of this implant is going to submit a pre-market approval, a PMA. And again, there's a great guidance document on preparing a PMA submission. But the general idea is class three PMA products almost always require clinical evidence. And because it is a product that's not currently on the U.S. market, in order to do a clinical trial evaluating the safety, efficacy, and other endpoints of a PMA product, it requires the sponsor or the company that's developing this product to file for an investigational device exemption. Exemption being the key word there. And what is being exempt is the FDA is saying, after much discussion on clinical trial design, on the potential safety relative to the potential risk, the FDA is saying this product that the company is seeking to produce, it meets the standards of an IDE and the protocol and the way the study sponsors are going to evaluate the clinical outcomes of this product. We are willing to give you an exemption and you can actually do this clinical trial here in the United States as long as each of the sites where you attempt to enroll patients, they have independent investigational review board approval or IRB approval. In some countries, it's called an ethics committee. But this is just where the hospital and the study site, their own local bodies have determined that the potential risk to the patient that's being offered a clinical trial, in this case, an investigational device exemption, an IDE study, that the potential benefits outweigh the risks. And this is just generally ethical application of using human subjects for clinical trials. So that is the class three. Now, what happens for the PMA submission and the class three medical device is it takes significantly longer because it means, first, the company usually has to do some early performance evaluation, whether it be in a biomechanical model, bench testing using mechanical rigs, or possibly, depending on local jurisdictions, international clinical evidence collected, and of course, always complying with the local regulators of that country. So when the sponsor of a PMA submission has sufficient performance data, they can then begin to engage with the FDA through the form of a Q submission. And the Q submission, or often referred to as the Q sub, now takes the place of what was previously known as the pre-IDE meeting. And I highly recommend the Q submission because what it does is it gives you an opportunity to meet, whether face-to-face or virtually, the FDA branch that's going to be regulating your device. And so this is your opportunity to, first of all, 
let them know your passion for this problem and this unmet need that you really believe needs to be served. Bring it to life, what these patients go through of existing options, understanding that. And then you can methodically lay out the very systematic approach you've taken to understanding risk, failure modes, and display the performance evidence that you've collected on your product. Now, if this meeting goes well, and it will be a collaboration, the FDA will give you a sense to the form of call notes. And so it's important for the sponsor to take meeting minutes of this discussion and then circulate them to FDA so that they can agree that your summary of the points, FDA's feedback, there is full alignment. But it is with the queue submission meeting notes and the discussion from that meeting that will allow you to prepare an IDE submission. And the IDE submission is a fully prepared clinical trial incorporating FDA's feedback from the QSUB meeting. And when the FDA says this clinical trial is now approved, you've created value for your business. And it's an important milestone for a class three company, a class three product being developed by a company because it shows a path to complete clinical data collection that FDA has said, should you meet a particular endpoint, whether it be non-inferiority to other implants in the similar space, or in some cases, even a superiority bar. But you will know what exactly has to happen next. And to finance the clinical trial, investors will understand the relative cost, the relative timeline, and that will help them give a sense of what they're willing to invest and at what valuation. So a pre-IDE or a Q-submission followed by an IDE submission, followed by an IDE-approved clinical trial. It's a big milestone for a business. So that's now class three. So the second one, we've covered class one, generic, general use, limited ability to promote specific applications. Now let's talk about class two. Now class two is the most common regulatory pathway by FDA for medical devices because what it attempts to do is it calls out a period in time in the late 70s where many medical devices were regulated. And FDA says, here's what we're going to do. There's so many categories within surgery and med tech. We're going to classify these products into specific codes. And our belief is that in aggregate, they represent the majority of medical implant instrument types. And moving forward, they will now serve as predicates. And so when industry or academia develop a new medical device, we will determine their regulatory status based on the existence or non-existence of a predicate. And so being able to understand how to review CDRH, which is the medical device branch of FDA, and actually seek out creatively predicates that could serve as a valid predicate for your novel medical device, yet there's substantial, there's sufficient leeway within that category where there's enough different design features within the predicate class that some of the novel features of your implant could still meet the predicate and valid predicate for a class two submission. And so let's go now to, we'll take something really generic, an orthopedic screw. There are orthopedic screws cleared by the FDA through the class two pathway. And now a company wants to develop an orthopedic screw. So the first thing the company does is look at the 510K database. And the database will have product codes. 
So for instance, I think the orthopedic bones crew is, I want to say UWC or something like that. And so you look at that and you look at the definition of that product and you really want to make sure that what you intend to develop could reasonably fit that and pay specific attention to all the language used because if your implant kind of meets this definition, but there's some major features that are different. Let's say it goes to a different body. It has some new feature like it's powered or has a material that's never been evaluated in the body. That's not going to be a predicate. But with the class two, the sponsor of the submission for a class two clearance, which is called a 510K submission, the 510K submission, you really have to, it's very well described what the submitting company has to substantiate. So the first one is, does a valid predicate exist? And so there's a flowchart, again, on the FDA website, 510K decision-making flowchart. Is there a valid predicate? If yes, next. Does this product, does it have any design features that represent new types of safety and efficacy questions? So for instance, if you're going to do an orthopedic screw that has some magnetic feature that makes it change its shape, that's a design change than a typical screw, is that going to raise new types of safety and efficacy questions? If the answer is no, then you can continue down the flowchart. Are there performance data that exists that can prove substantial performance equivalent to the predicate? And so in the case of orthopedic implants, that typically comes in the form of bench testing. And I say bench because it means you're in a mechanical engineering environment where you're designing setups, these rigs that allow you to do things like apply an axial load, apply dynamic compression over a series of time. And what's nice about bench testing is there is a body called the ASTM, which publishes recognized standards for evaluating certain features of medical implants, not just medical implants, but for our purposes for medical implants. And so for instance, for screws, there's a very specific standard on how much load a screw implanted into bone needs to withstand. And so if you've met the requirement that there is a valid predicate, that does in fact exist. That's step one. Step two, does your device have any unique design characteristics that could, and I use could because that's an important word, that is where FDA has some leeway. It's really their subjective opinion. And so could it represent new types of safety and FC questions? If no, are there recognized standards and performance data that help prove substantial equivalence to the predicate. All right, so that's an important feature because for all the predicates out there, there are multiple, I mean, in some cases, hundreds of examples of 510K class two cleared products in that predicate category where FDA has all the performance data. And so as the submitting company of a new 510K submission, you don't always have the benefit of knowing what that performance data is, whether the results but there are ways to triangulate. Specifically, there's some great testing labs that do this kind of bench testing. They're certainly not going to break confidentiality, but what they can do is tell you a range that they see. So if you met all that criteria, you prepare your 510K submission, which is very much featured around the flowchart concept of, is there a valid predicate? If so, what is it? Then it's the design characteristics of your implant and why they conform to this predicate concept. You then have to determine what is your intended FDA labeling. Now, FDA labeling is such an important concept because what it says is 
And it's really gets to the core of what FDA ultimately grants a new medical device, which is marketing clearance. It gives the industry sponsor the ability to promote and market a medical device for a specific purpose. And so it's important to know exactly what is your intended FDA cleared labeling. So when all that is prepared, the FDA submission is submitted. And one of the features of a 510K, which is desirable, is that the FDA has a statutory timeline where they have to review and make a decision within a span of 90 days. Now, that 90 days is FDA's time with the document. So in the event that they have a need for additional information, which they would typically send to the sponsor in the form of a letter, and it's usually very well detailed. And when they do that and they ask for questions, they stop the clock. So I think it's a nice way of looking at if you have a thorough FDA submission and you've prepared all data is in the guidance document for submitting 510Ks, I always like to think it could take six months. And so you send it to the FDA. They first, there's a process by which they approve that the submission is indeed in order. All the specific sections called out again in the 510K guidance document are there. There's a review that the predicate does in fact exist. There's even a quick review of whether or not that predicate is valid. But at that point, once your submission is accepted, it's usually within maybe 45 to 60 days that FDA will respond to the F510K submitting party and say, we've received it. We have the following questions. Please respond. Clock stopped. Now, you have time to respond to their questions because sometimes you might need to do more work. Maybe repeat a bench test. You also have the ability to request a 180-day extension, which gives you another six months. And in the event that FDA requires you to provide some type of evidence or data that's going to take you longer than six months, you have the ability to withdraw that 510K submission, and that stops your clock. And then you can take as long as you need. So the last point I would mention on these three class one, class two, and class three regulatory pathways for getting marketing clearance through the FDA for a medical device is number one, class three medical devices almost by definition have clinical evidence, specific marketing claims. And these are incredibly valuable when a company intends to commercialize or an acquirer of a certain technology attempts to commercialize because clinical evidence is the currency of the realm, as they say. And what do I mean by that? In order to get surgeons to take your product seriously, or physicians, all healthcare providers, they're scientific-minded people. They make scientific decisions based on evidence. And so having that when going to a new potential customer, it's incredibly important. Said another way, it's hard to do without it. The second thing is, should you uncover a need for your target customer and that customer decide to want to use your product, if it's going to be implanted or used at a hospital, Hospital facilities want to know that you have clinical evidence before they approve your product to be bought at all. So clinical evidence, although it takes a long time, actually accelerates greatly the commercial ramp of a medical device. It also, for the potential investor and acquirer of this technology, it substantiates the value and the IP and really everything that your company is trying to do. And so it de-risks the next financing, the next phase of the company's development. Now, there was a time where people thought 510K products were somehow superior because you could commercialize quickly, get to some meaningful amount of traction, aka revenue, and on the basis of 
regulatory clearance, early commercial traction, company gets acquired. And you can do that all with a relatively short amount of time and a capital. Now, in the last 15 years, the time from founding the company to exiting of a 510k product is now longer than 10 years. I saw a report in just a couple months ago in March. It's approaching 11 years is the average time from founding to exit for a 510k. Class three or PMA product is actually closer to eight to nine years. And so what that tells me in someone that likes to start medical device companies, I believe it is a lower risk proposition for the entrepreneur, the investors, and ultimately the patients and users. It is a better proposition to pursue PMA products because PMA products, although they take longer to commercialize, the path to commercialization is all about clinical evidence and the underlying value of the asset you're working so hard to develop is always going to be a function of the evidence that you generate. So hope you enjoy the episode. Stay tuned for more. All right, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Unmet Need on FDA Matters. Hopefully you found the description of class one, class two, and class three medical devices helpful. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn or hit me up at jeff at jeffsmith.co. And you can always find my content, www.jeffsmith.co. All right, folks, that's all for today. But thanks for listening to another episode of Unmet Need. Hope you found something on the show today to be useful. And as always, please reach out to me. My website's jeffsmith.co. That's J-E-F-F-S-M-I-T-H dot C-O. You can also look for me on LinkedIn or all social media platforms. The point of this podcast is all about the physician entrepreneur. I'm looking forward to meeting you. I want to help you on what you're doing. So don't be shy. Drop me a comment on social media or just send me an email at jeff at jeffsmith.co. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode of Unmet Needs.